Hey, podcast listeners, this is Kobe. Um, the discussion you're about to hear is – it was just a really fun discussion to have. Uh, we sat down with Naomi Carolyn. Uh, Matias and I sat down with Naomi Carolyn, who is an IR major here uh, focusing in Asia. Um, she has taken an, an extracurricular interest in North Korea since high school, I believe, and uh, she just has a remarkable depth of knowledge in reference to North Korea. And so we wanted to tap that knowledge and really have an interesting discussion about current affairs in North Korea and uh, potential ways this situation might resolve itself and, and, and also the development of it. Really, we, we this com- conversation is comprehensive. It, it really deals with all things North Korea, all things North Korea-China. Um, U.S., China, U.S., North Korea, and then we really actually expanded some really macro-scale geopolitical issues. I think you're going to love this conversation. I really enjoyed having it, and uh, we wanted to thank Naomi. Uh, and without further ado, uh, here's the episode. So we're talking around the time of you know significant interest in North Korea because of the developments uh, that have happened this year, um, <clears throat> particularly with the uh, coming of the Trump administration. So where I think I want to start is with some of the issues this year. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take a moment just to list uh, a couple things that have happened. So there was the the deployment of the THAAD uh, ant- missile system, defense system in South Korea. That caused a harsh response in Beijing. They sanctioned South Korean companies. Um, and uh, there have been increasing tensions with uh, for example, and I think about a week ago, Kim Jong-un was planning a nuclear test. They ended up delaying it, some think in response to the administration, U.S. administration's deployment of ships to North Korea. So there are false, tensions. False deployment. False deployment, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a total effing lie, but, uh, or at least for a little while it was. But anyways, um, you know, I, I want to dig into the issue and, and talk about what do you see right now as the avenues of easing tensions. I mean, what how much how much China how much further could China go do you think to actually um, enforce sanctions under the North Korean regime or pressure the North Korean regime? Because I think one of the major debates is what degree of leverage does China actually have over the North Korean regime? Mm-hmm. Um so I think they certainly have the most leverage out of anyone, but that right. being said it's not very much because they do both have this sort of dependent relationship on each other, but right. they also both don't like each other. So right. their leverage in some ways is there and exists, but mm-hmm. it is also quite limited. Um, but if you're thinking in terms of trade, you have, I think, about 70 to 80% of North Korean exports go to China. Right. The other 20% is surprisingly to South Korea. Right. Um, but that being said, it's you know they don't export a lot. But if you were to theoretically cut off 70% of their exports... Right that could cause a lot of serious damage. So so let's actually, now that I think about it, let's back up for a second and yeah. say, uh, the, the, the North Korean reliance on Chinese guarantees of security is, is very obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's go in reverse and say, what are Chinese interests in North Korea? Because I think that from the perspective of someone who just reads you know, reads the newspaper on a daily basis, it's not entirely obvious mm-hmm. um, what the root of this uh, alliance, if you can even call it that at this point, what that is. And so what what is the root of, of Chinese interest in North Korea? So they are um, their communist neighbor, essentially, even right. though they're a crazy dictatorship regime. Um, right. In some ways, they need them um, to help create a buffer state against yeah. South Korea. Right. Um, South Korea is U.S.-backed, is mm-hmm. nuclear-backed. 
Um, and there's so much tension in this area that at least having that buffer, even though it's a volatile buffer, mm -hmm. they need that. Uh, whether they need actually Kim Jong-un's regime is another question. And if they were able to potentially institute their own regime, that would benefit them a lot more. But right. then you have the issue of would that regime even be stable? Would it be more stable than it is now? So, you know, what they can do is going to be quite difficult, but they need a communist regime in order to separate themselves from South Korea and have that divide then by that extent the United States. Right, and the, the other the other problem is is that, you know, it can be seen as so this is a historical issue, obviously. Um, you know, there was there was a, a historical relation as a result of the Cold War, uh, the Soviets instituting the North Korean regime. But the question becomes over time, I guess. I guess the better way to phrase the question is yes, the roots of the alliance are obviously ideological um, and, and geopolitical in reference to a different global paradigm, which was the Cold War, right? So from, I guess if you say from 1991 onwards, from the collapse of the Soviet Union and then the increasing level of provocation by North Korea, you, still, you have to ask the question, how long is China willing to go to maintain the regime as an ally, given the threats that, that China sort of brings unto itself by supporting the regime, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I guess one of the other issues that, that China has an interest in is that I think there are like something like two million ethnic Koreans living on the border, on the Chinese side of the border of the Yalu River. And if the North Korean regime collapses, you have a, an even bigger flood of, of refugees potentially uh, coming from North Korea into China, which China might not be able to handle um, both in terms of actually just getting aid to these folks and then also in a political sense, that may be a big issue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, so I think either way, you're going to have people who are going to try to defect to China. Mm -hmm. um, we see it now, and it's becoming a lot more feasible with there are some fractures in mm -hmm. the North Korean government that allows it's that there are way more defectors. So you are having those people defect to China and then eventually outward. But most of them usually stay in China or at least try to do prolonged business in China. Right. Um, so you have that. Um, and then the other question, oh, how long are they going to be able to essentially keep up this alliance? Um, right. Yeah, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty intense question. I mean, if you think about it, it this alliance is kind of embarrassing for China in some right. ways of... North Korea is clearly doing things without China's consent. Um, mm -hmm. All of their missile testing. I think they had a failed missile test mm -hmm. last week they that did, they tried yeah. to fail because <laughs> maybe because of U.S. cyber intervention, perhaps. We True. Or uh, the other possibility is that their programs just aren't right. where they say they are. Right. Um, and so, you know, in some way, a relief, but also they don't have they're doing this without the consent of their one and only ally. So right. I think the fact that China is still able to keep them on and string mm -hmm. them on throughout all of these missile testing and nuclear programs and throughout everyone's sanctioning of North Korea, with the exception of South Korea to some extent and China, um, they are able to persist. Um, they're able to keep this relationship on much more than people were thinking. I think that in order to dismantle that relationship, it's going to require a lot more global support of China in this, right. which 
people aren't willing to see because their whole issue with North Korea is then by default China. Right, and, and so the Chinese took the dramatic step in, mm-hmm. in February of cutting off coal imports from from North Korea. Mm-hmm. And that's important for a couple reasons. First of all, that's a major source of funding mm-hmm. for the North Korean regime. But importantly, that's actually a major source of foreign exchange, which essentially in sort of dark black markets trickles through the North Korean economy and allows low-level private enterprise to occur across across the Chinese border. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, there are these... So, so China in, I think it was... 2009, after the 2009 missile test, which was the second, uh, sorry, 2009 nuclear test, which was the second nuclear test, um, signed on to UN sanctions, uh, which they have not been very inclined to enforce. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a significant step to get them to to engage in the sanctions, but they haven't been inclined to enforce them. So the, the issue I want to bring up uh, is essentially the coal cutoff is one thing, but how much further do you think China is willing to go? And what is stopping them? Do you think it's that if they continue to go, a little, if they think if they press too hard on enforcing the sanctions, they could cause enough regime instability to collapse the regime, and they don't want to take that risk? Is that is that what's causing them to hit the brakes on it? Yeah, I I mean I I honestly think so, and I think you have so much tension from the side of South Korea as well that right. you don't know, um, or at least my guess would be China isn't quite sure how South Korea would act. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you have the whole issue of um, the instability of the United States, and mm-hmm. are they going to back South Korea as much as they have in the past? Right. Um, it's looking like potentially not. So, you know, are they going to be willing to press forward and potentially try to unify the peninsula without mm-hmm. the backing of the U.S.? Um, I think there are so many unknown factors at this point that here right now most likely would feel more stable for mm-hmm. China and the Chinese government. Right. Um, so for how how far are they willing to go, my guess would be is until North Korea is impacting them directly. Because if you think about it, China is such a huge economy um, right. and obviously huge land mass, huge mm-hmm. population. So North Korea has not really made a dent in their day-to-day political lives um, up until... See, uh- I might argue against that. I mean, the, and, uh, and I, I just think it's important to say that despite all of the sanctions that have, that have been implemented and put in place um, by China, the fact remains that the border between China and North Korea is relatively porous in terms of mm. the number of people who actually cross back and forth, the number of the volume of goods and uh, of goods that actually go back and forth in a very informal sense. There's, um, in some sense, this sort of implicit private economy that occurs in the board, northern border regions between um, between China and North Korea right. by virtue of the fact that it is fairly easy to logistically cross into China from North Korea in certain points. Right. And so the North Korean regime, for material reasons, has been very reluctant to actually pay any attention to that, to pay any heed to that, and the Chinese likewise, because the fact of the matter is that in the international community, North Korea is backed into a corner. And so if you cut off any and all access via China, then essentially you're cutting off the last lifeline of a North Korean regime that I think it's safe to say is uh, fairly idiosyncratic in the way that it works and the way that it functions, specifically on a military level as well. So for China, the issue is is it's not necessarily that it makes a dent in, in their economy or anything like that. It's a it's that 
it's a potential source of immense instability directly on their border region. Right. And that, more than anything else, is, is their concern. And that's why they're so concerned with the escalation of American rhetoric with regard to the regime itself, because they understand that these people are not necessarily all that disposed to conciliation and compromise. Right, right. I mean, so, so two things. In terms of the economics of the situation, um, essentially, you know, this sort of like bottom, what, what they call bottom-up marketization is filling in a hole that the North Korean regime needs to be filled in, but they can't explicitly say this is we can we can conduct um, you know sort of free market exchange with the Chinese because you know that's a threat to their ideology and uh, it exposes them as as hypocrites. You know, it's like one of these like doctrinal issues with communism, right? But then in terms of what Matthias is bringing up is that I, I, I would have to say that the Chinese are beginning to be specifically affected by. Uh, the unpredictability of the of the regime, because when you get this continuing continuing sense of escalation, you have to realize that Korea is not in a vacuum. And so, when the U.S. deploys, uh, when the U.S. deploys the what Carl Vincent, excuse me, the Carl Vincent or whatever to uh, to the the short the waters off Korea, all of a sudden you have this issue of encirclement where the you know the U.S. is um, is beefing up its presence in Korea, both through missile defense in the south, through uh, when it sends an armada. Um, then you have, you know, uh, the Japanese ally, the very strong ally of the United States. Um, you've got Taiwan. And, and you got, the Chinese in some way need to figure out a way to diffuse some sort of tension. Um, and then not to mention the fact that the U.S. conducts freedom of navigation exercises through the South China Sea. And so... I'm I'm starting to believe that there is a point at which China is going to comply with the international community mm. and take the risk of, of destabilizing the regime to in in order to exert whatever leverage it has. It does. I don't even think the Chinese regime knows what leverage it has mm. uh, over North Korea, apart from being able to collapse it at any at a you know in a moment's notice if it decides to cut off uh, cut off trade entirely. Right, um, and I I do think you know that you bring up an interesting point of they do find value in the situation, but that's more from the, the international pressure, mm -hmm. as you were talking about. And if they're, if the international community is able to instill this pressure and put this pressure on China mm -hmm. um, to control North Korea or get involved in a way that will stabilize it further, um, that is when you're actually going to see China really making and putting these measures in. But right now, we haven't really had that so far. Um, we haven't been able to put that pressure on China because I think because they're such not only a regional hegemon, but they're, I mean, they're becoming a global hegemon. Um, mm, and right. they are, some right. would argue. Um, so I think if and when we would be able to put that pressure on China, that's when they actually have more incentive to completely stabilize it. Um, but I don't, I don't know about the border, the porous border necessarily being that much of an incentive for them. Because I, I think either way, you know, they, it's not, um, especially the southern region isn't as much of a pressing issue for them um, right. as opposed to um, the more international issues. And there's not that much that they could physically do about it just right. because of the geography of mm -hmm. the two countries. But you brought up the, the, the point of leverage. And I think one of the interesting shifts that's occurred as a result of the uh, ascendance of the Trump administration is that the leverage has, has actually, in my view, benefited China 
because the access that they have to the North Korean regime and the focus that Donald Trump places on the North Korean regime makes North Korea an effective bargaining chip for China. Right. And so basically, they're able to they're they're able to trade off certain concessions on the North Korean issue in exchange for economic, but basically economic compromises, uh, de-escalation of American rhetoric towards China. Right. So well, it's 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 basically it's it's kind of shifted the the chessboard in China's favor in a very real way on a diplomatic level. As far as I'm concerned, it gives them a greater ability to extract concessions from the United States, which at this stage. You know, it's not all that clear who's going to get what from the Trump administration, and that's not just for China, but also for um, traditional historical American allies. Yeah, well, I, I tr- you know, the interesting thing is that Trump thinks he's winning when he says, "Well, why would I uh, call China a currency manipulator if they're going to help us on the North Korean issue?" And he goes, "Look what I did! Look what I did! I got <laughs> them! I got them to move on the North Korean issue." But he doesn't realize he's being played. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. exactly what you're saying is that Xi Jinping and and the Chinese they they used North Korea as an issue as a, a bargaining chip to in order to make sure that Donald Trump gave up the uh, currency manipulation issue. But in defense of the Trump administration, you could also say that he was never going to move on the Chinese economic thing in the first place because of how destructive that would be and how destructive a potential trade war with China was going to be, which is why he's redirected his trade war efforts towards Canada, apparently, now, which is yeah. uh, you know, so a much easier <laughs> I, target. I woke up this morning and read that, and I was I was dumbfounded. <laughs> honestly, honestly. Oh, dear God. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think the one slight issue in thinking of North Korea as a bargaining chip is um, how North Korea is playing, essentially, and how they're playing this as well. And you see this through very small acts on their parts. I mean, they have they have the larger, broad acts of trying to flex their nuclear muscles, um, but you also have very small slights of, say, killing everyone that Kim Jong-un's related to. Um. <laughs> that, that is, that's precisely what I want to get into. I'm so happy you yeah. said that, because I want to get into the into into the Kim Jong-nam issue, which is yeah. really interesting mm-hmm. uh, on a couple accounts. First of all, um, you kill Kim Jong-nam, and you have no blood successor or... Uh, I mean, I think, is, isn't there another... He actually does. Yeah, he there, has a successor. Yeah. Um, it, I believe, is Kim Jong-nam's son um, is in the Netherlands right now. Right, and um, the, the New York Times had this super interesting video on him. I don't know if you saw that, where it talked about sort of his potential, like, his, well, his very, obviously, very Western influence. He's in the Netherlands. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I suppose if the Chinese ever wanted to, they could reach out. Yeah. They could. And I, I think they were, um, it was either Kim Jong-nam, I think both Kim Jong-nam and, I'm totally forgetting the name, but Kim Jong-un's uncle, who he killed uh, a little while ago. Kim, uh, fake uh, something jong fake or something? Yep, right, something yeah, like yeah. that. Um, but he also, I think, was had the support of China. And so you right. see these people who are, related to Kim Jong-un um, who support China or China supports them in some way and then they're effectively getting killed. Um, right. So I think part of that is just the fact that they are a successor and right. Kim Jong-un is going to want to preserve his power. Okay. But the other potential issue, and this is completely speculative, but is he wanting to try to push out China and assert his own dominance by showing that no Chinese-backed ruler could 
be a successor. I don't know. Um, Especially, you know, you see this son who's now out in the Netherlands and he, I would say, is strongly at risk. Um, And I, I would not put it past unless China could potentially try to secure him. I wouldn't put it past North Korea finding him. Right. And um, it's important to note that the uncle had really strong influence in terms of economic relations with mm-hmm. uh, with China. I think actually so, as, as I understood it, um, the, the Kim Jong-un regime, which has been in place since 2012, early 2012, has attempted slowly to to kind of institutionalize the, the market system in a way that's not entirely explicit. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, I think he was sort of the minister in charge of, of dealing with this until, of course, I guess he was suspected of being a little bit too close to Chinese contacts across the border. They lifted him up in the middle of a party congress or something of this sort and brought him out and I think he was like shot on state television or something yeah. or they, they escorted him on state te- television to hit to the firing squad which is just I mean also a remarkable show of force but the other thing and I, I think Professor Woodward brought this up last week in class when we were discussing the issue is um, the fact that the way they killed uh, Kim Jong-un yeah with the with the uh, BX Sarener. yeah the yep the, the nerve gas just to show that we're developing <laughs> nuclear weapons but even if we can't make these things work we have we have chemical we have weaponry, chemical, chemical weapons, and also yeah. I think it was like a, I don't want to say well, I, it was a bit of a cheeky like this was us because yeah. I, I, people know that they do have yeah. chemical weaponry yeah. capability and it very easily, uh, you, Malaysia wasn't going to do that right. so I I think it very easily pointed back to Kim Jong Un in a way that was like you know yeah. we, we're we're not afraid to kill our successors. Right. Um, I mean, it, it definitely poses a threat because if China did ever want to institute a new regime um, via, and this sounds kind of radical, but I, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, via a coup d'etat, mm-hmm. then who are they going to do it with? Right. Because what about the people who are favoring Kim Jong-un and their whole family? You know, their family is now dying off. Mm-hmm. Uh, so who do, you, who do you put in that place to ensure at least some stability between those who favor more open market, favor more liberal policies, but also the diehard Kim Jong-un and Kim family um, supporters. I, I think that, that raises the, the question of the North Korean military mm-hmm. and the importance that has in, in North Korean power. Because the, from, from what I understand, the strength of... Uh, the ruling family itself is directly contingent on a continuing tradition of support within the military establishment in North Korea, which comprises a large part of the so-called civil leadership of the state itself. And on that level, I think there is a remarkable amount of politics that are actually played within the military. And to what extent and in what direction, what the underlying dynamics are, I personally haven't seen any real information on that level. I'm assuming that people who don't have direct access to the regime itself haven't seen it either, so that makes it that much more difficult to predict what is actually happening and what could potentially happen in the event of some kind of significant change within the ruling structure of the North Korean government. I think it's an open question even for somebody like the Chinese. 
Yeah. yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting in China is that there's, I guess since so since there were there were some incidents in, I'm not gonna get the year right, maybe 2010, where the North Koreans started shooting at um, uh, South Korean ships mm -hmm. uh, off yeah. off the coast, yeah. right? And in response to this, in in the sort of high levels of Chinese foreign policy thought, they they were talking about, well, you know, is it is it is there a time where we'll abandon North Korea and and perhaps pursue uh, a reunification policy tr and rather than install a new regime if they could f find one, right? If they could maybe at that time install the uncle, install uh, Kim Jong Nam or, or eventually Kim Jong Nam's son, right? And Recently, actually last week, uh, a professor of mine handed out in class uh, a speech by a prominent Chinese historian, and I wish I had the name, um, I don't have it on me, but uh, he, he gave a speech basically saying that the, the interests of the Chinese and the North Koreans no longer align, and, and we should perhaps pursue a policy, he said, of uh, eventual reunification, maybe allowing the regime to collapse, um, maybe administering a temporary uh, temporary state in North Korea, figuring out how to deal with... I mean, there are a lot of issues to get to get over, but but ultimately he was talking about the divergence of Chinese and North Korean issues. Uh, and uh, I guess what I want to bring that up and talk about what's... I mean, what's interesting to me is that if you consider economic ties as one of the main things that, that unifies countries in the modern world, I mean, the entire EU is based on the concept of, of enemies being tied together through uh, interlaced economies, right? The South Korean trading relationship, in terms of volume with China, is one of the largest. I mean, South Koreans trade more with the Chinese than they do with the United States. Mm -hmm. They're our ally by virtue of sort of history and, and, geopolitical, and, and, ge yeah, yeah. and geopolitical alignment and security. I mean, they need us for security. But ultimately, that if you take away the North Korean threat on their northern border, on the 38th parallel, and you start talking about what you know, what become if Korea were to unify, what uh, attracts, uh, what is the magnet between South Korea or what eventually would be the Korean government, uh, unified Korean government in the United States, you start to get a shorter list of, of things that align and you start to get a very long list with China by virtue of being neighbors. They would then share a border um, and then, you know, economic ties. So. Do you have any? Do you have any thoughts on on a, on a potential situation? Again, there are a lot of hurdles to get over refugees and, and other things. Mm -hmm. Of the Chinese pursuing rather than displacing the Kim Jong Un or the uh, Il Sung lineage. Right. Um, so I think one that's going to be very dependent on the South Korean election um, and what happens there. Uh, and what the position of that person is with unifying the Koreas or where they're looking at. But two, I think your rationale there is functioning under the assumption that um, economic ties may be more important than security ties, mm. which I think was completely the other way around during the Cold War. And that's not to say it is that way now. There are, I mean, you mentioned the EU. That's a perfect example of where economic ties are more important than security ties. But how it's looking for, I would say, both South Korea and China, that they're valuing security more in this situation than their economy. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the fact that they're both able to function without a security tie to each other and without any sort of geopolitical tie, but with an economic tie. Um, that not only is that kind of relationship possible, but it seems as if right now they're they're both caring more about security. That being said, you know, is the U.S. going to be able to provide South Korea the security that they're wanting within the next four years of Trump's administration or even potentially eight? Um, you know, we don't... <laughs> I know. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, I realized I had to open it to that possibility. <laughs> Didn't mean to give you a hard palpitation. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we we don't know. Um and if that is, if that doesn't seem likely to South mm-hmm. Korea, I could see the new government and the new leader turning to look towards a more amicable relationship with China. Right. And I could see them valuing that more than their relationship with the U.S. Um, but within the context of the, of I think the the South China Sea dispute diplomatically, a reunified Korea would immediately open a can of worms that hasn't really been touched in Southeast Asia since the end of the Viet, uh, the Viet, the war in Viet, the American war in Vietnam, which is namely the question of balance of power mm. in the region. And a unified Korea, just by virtue of its history and its rapport with Japan, for instance, would provoke, I think, a series of reactions on a geopolitical and a diplomatic level that could shift the direction of the region in ways that are fairly unpredictable because we haven't really played all that much with the significant variables within the region itself beyond the economic variable, which has, generally speaking, been a positive development regardless of ideological stripe, be it communist, socialist, capitalist regime, or even an authoritarian regime in the region. So the perspective of a unified Korea, which is a huge part of their political culture as well, because how could it not be, um, is on a global level, I think, uh, could be a potential flashpoint just in terms of how other powers would react, both locally, regionally, and then on an international level. And, and that question, as far as I'm concerned, is raises another one, which is namely, does the international community ha- actually have an interest in a reunified Korea? Or is the status quo preferable just in terms of assuring stability moving forward? given the regional shifts that are occurring in Southeast Asia, the abandonment of the TPP and the development of Chinese institutions that are geared towards international development on a regional level. Yeah. AIB and... Right. Uh, and the Silk Road 2.0, yeah, yeah. Those, those types of efforts, which, as far as I'm concerned, if you look at standard of living and economic development are positives, net positives, but in terms of influence and geopolitics, that's a different question. And so, again, it's it's, it's a question of, the the question of balance of power, as far as I'm concerned, is is one that that people don't talk about enough in that region. This might be a little bit off topic. I mean, I guess we're staying within the region, but what, so while the... um, Obama administration uh, existed. They made this argument for the TPP as a geopolitical. Their their primary argument was geopolitical. You hear you heard it all the time. You said mm-hmm. you said uh, America needs to write the rules in Asia in the twenty first century. You heard this line over and over and over again. And I I, I frankly was skeptical of that line. Mm-hmm. Um, it to me seemed like something that was burying or diverting attention from maybe 
the ec potential economic implications of the actual trade deal. Mm -hmm. uh, in hindsight, and I, I, all I'm saying is I'm skeptical. I wasn't necessarily against it, but I, I was skeptical of it. And I think in hindsight, um, as soon as it's gone and it was wiped off the table, I'm starting to buy that argument. What do you What do you think of that argument in terms of like a geopolitical, the, the TPP as a geopolitical force in Asia, an organizing force of the United States? <laughs> you know, I, I, I am skeptical at how effective that could have been, right. um, especially because what Japan was the other major backer, right. um, and you see how much influence Japan has lost. Mm -hmm. So on the one, and on top of that, how much, and you can ask this about any trade deal, but how much are they going to be able to enforce it? Mm -hmm. um, you don't know because someone like China, which is one of the biggest traders in the world, mm -hmm. um, they, you, if they just chose to completely wipe this away, um, mm -hmm. institute their own things, you have the example of um, AIB was China back, correct? Right, right. Yeah, so you have these other organizations that China is trying to pop, prop up in light of this. I think, I don't know how much influence it would have had. I don't know how much of a... Well, but the, the argument could be made, it could be made in response to AAIB, which was really, as far as I understand, was not conceived of in geopolitical terms at all until the TPP collapsed mm -hmm. and all of a sudden people said, oh, wow, look at China exerting its influence <laughs> yeah. in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, if you had the TPP there, I don't think anyone would be paying much, uh, would be giving much uh, attention to AAIB as like this geopolitical force. Then you also have the One Belt, One Road initiative in China, which is um, basically just funding, infra as, as I understand it, is basically funding infrastructure mm -hmm. projects in Southeast Asian countries. And of course, you know, there are strings attached to everything, right? And so, I, I mean, like, I guess my question is, with the Trump approach of putting emphasis on military force as a threat, I mean, basically, what's interesting is that <laughs> He sits down to dinner with Xi Jinping and goes, "Oh, by the way, I just lobbed fifty-nine Tomahawk missiles into Syria because they didn't, you know, as a, as a punishment, right?" I mean, that's and look a mess. This chocolate cake is. Yeah, and look <laughs> at, yeah, exactly. And look at you know, and so so it seems that the only you know, Trump's strategy, if you can call it that, even is is all right. I'm going to show that I'm a tough guy. I'm going to show that you know. You know, we will let them off the hook as currency manipulators. They do what we want, and we'll, you know, lob missiles into Syria to show them that we'll do the same thing in North Korea. I mean, this whole idea is it seems to be a very one-dimensional, is what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very one-dimensional idea. Whereas, if you had something like the TPP, if you had diplomatic efforts within uh, within the region, America would be able to kind of play its play its hand better. Um, so I think there is an interesting perspective to uh, President Trump's approach. And um, to preface that, I don't agree with it at all. Right. But I think it's interesting because it, is, it does seem very one-dimensional. And I think, I mean, I can't begin to guess. But I would assume that it, his opinion of it is pretty face value of attack countries and then get what you want. Right. But you do have the issue of during his candidacy, he was not... His pivot towards Asia was not that of Obama. Obama really wanted to pivot towards Asia, and right. he was focusing more away from that. 
Um, but now you have him putting this concentration there and seeing his military force that he's used elsewhere, it does leave a ton of speculation of what is he going to do there and is he going to put military force there. And I think for that reason, it does give people like Xi Jinping a reason to be concerned and to feel like he needs to at least somewhat be diplomatic and work with Trump. Because right. you have no idea what he's going to do. No one has any idea. Right. I don't even know if he has an idea. So that's actually, that's actually you know, so I, referencing a different Common Thread interview for a moment here, where <laughs> we were talking about um, we were talking about Turkey with Dr. Chabi, right? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, you know, for X, Y, and Z strategic reason, you know, uh, and the point doesn't matter. But I said, what what do you think U.S. policy is going to look like over the long term in response to this issue? And he basically said. His answer was boiled down to, as someone who even studies international relations, he has a doctorate, right? He can no longer make any sort of prediction about uh, U.S. policy in the future just because there is no coherent worldview behind what's going on. And I mean, I, I don't. I think I'm probably stating something obvious here, but I think it's important to highlight how critical it is that there is some degree of predictability in U.S. policy. I mean, Donald Trump ran on the notion of, well, I'm going to be so unpredictable that our enemies aren't going to know what to do. And By implication, nor do your allies. Nor do your allies. <laughs> your allies need to know. You know like, like, for example, South Korea needs to know yeah. what's going to happen. Uh, sorry, so to, to move back to the Korean Peninsula, for mm-hmm. a minute, like South Korea needs to know what's going to happen, and China needs to know what's going to happen. I mean, China frenemy, you, you can call them whatever you want, but in the end of the day, they need to know, um, you, you create, you know, if you're in a IR class, a security dilemma, if um, basically an arms race, if uh, if you don't know what, what a very powerful global actor is going to do. Yeah. Um, that and I think it also raises the question of the North Korean security perspective. Right. Now we have limited, we have obviously limited knowledge of what the internal deliberations of the regime are, but on the other hand, I think if you look at, at, at the very least, the relationship that the North Korean regime has had with the international, uh, um, what is it, the IAE, the International mm. uh, Atomic Energy, whatever. I, I, IAEA. Yeah, thank you, the, I, the, the IAEA, um, and the fact that it has actually not been a... Uh, a unilateral re- relationship in the sense that it hasn't been just going in one direction in the sense that the, the North Koreans are s- simply rejecting any kind of international access or anything like that. It's gone back and forth. And I think that that's a reflection of North Korean perceptions of the way that the United States, via its proxy, South Korea, is positioning itself in the region relative to North Korea. I think it's a question of security threat perception. Right. So if... If that's if that's the if that's the the prism through which you're going to view and evaluate North Korean behavior, that first and foremost the nuclear issue is one of deterrence, essentially to ensure their own secure internal security and the continued existence of their regime. Then the other question that you have to ask is, okay, well then, how is an increasing show of force going to make any real difference? in getting a different response from North Korea. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so there are a couple things. First of all, so picking up on the idea of North Korean 
threat perception is this so so we formally thought or there are, were a lot of like high up analysts who formally thought all right well they're they're building up their nuclear capacity they're breaking all the agreements that we had made so the two primary agreements are 94 agreed framework in, in 2005 I forget what you call it but it was a function of the six party talks and mm-hmm. they agreed to to certain they stipulated to certain things 2006 they have their first um, nuclear test not that big um, and then two th- Increasingly, from 2009 onwards, they've just missile tests. Um, they've gotten up to five nuclear tests. They're about to conduct a sixth. And f- through the process of this escalation, many U.S. analysts thought, all right, well, they're trying to build up a capacity and then trade it away as a bargaining, a bargaining chip for some sort of regime security. But then you look at these two interesting examples elsewhere in the world, which are uh, uh, the Ukrainian issue, mm-hmm and the Libyan issue. Mm -hmm. What happened in Ukraine? Well, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union stored a lot of its nukes in Ukraine, and uh, right now you have an issue where the Ukrainians aren't, essentially aren't able to defend themselves from Russian, I mean, a a third of their country is swallowed up. Uh, So from the the perspective of, of being able to guarantee through the international community that your borders are going to be safe. Well, Ukraine got guarantees. They didn't just give up their nuclear mm-hmm. weapons for nothing. They said, the international community said, we're going to defend your borders, Ukraine, so long as you give up your nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And that agree- agreement happened, and now one-third of Ukraine is essentially swallowed up by Russia, or at least is in a state of war. Second example you have is Libya. 2003, they're in the early stages of nuclear development, and then uh, they strike a deal with the U.S., regime security in favor of um, you know giving up the nuclear program and, and intent inspections and then all of a sudden 2011 Gaddafi's Gaddafi's gone, Gaddafi's gone at, at the at the um, but because of the United States so if you're the North Korean regime and you're building up this nuclear capacity are you going to trade it away to the United States or to I mean to the international community ie United States? For the sake of regime security, when you see these precedents before you, I don't know. I, I don't know that. I, so, so I, I think the reason the reason this is becoming such a big big deal now is just that we've realized that there is no stopping the nuclearization of the regime, and there's nothing that they will trade for. There's nothing that they will negotiate for. Essentially, any time they've come to the negotiating table, it seems, has just been to buy time, mm-hmm. and the United States government has been played essentially time and time again every time they show up to the table. I don't know if you have a contrary view on that or Matthias. I mean, I, I don't know if I don't know if it's fair to say that the the U.S. has been has been played. I, I I think that the fact that the North Korean regime is pursuing the policy that it is pursuing is a direct function of American posturing. I, I, what, 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 I, so you think I, it's a direct? You think I, I, no, absolutely. Country. I think I think it's a direct. I, I think it's a direct function of a function of the way that they perceive their geopolitical relationships with China and the United States. Because on one hand, you could argue, okay, well, Ukraine uh, in in the Ukraine, for instance, the United States gave assurances, but as it turned out, they were empty assurances. In North Korea, in in North Korea's situation, you could argue that they would have a greater source of security, and just by the fact that they're aligned with China. But then we were just talking about how basically North Korea is at the mercy of China in a lot of ways on the diplomatic level, 
and abandoning a nuclear function would further put them in uh, a situation of complete dependency on Chinese on Chinese policy with regard to North Korea. So in that sense, I don't. I I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it, it, I, I think it's inevitable that that. North Korea will develop a nu- nuclear weapons for the sole fact that it allows them to preserve some degree of independence with regard to policy decision making because it right. it obligates major players to to pay deference to some level of North Korean agency. Right. I, I think where we disagree, and maybe you can weigh on in on this, Naomi, is just that I think that that the whole time this was going on. The North Korean regime was set on on nuclear weapons. I don't think there was I don't think there was a time where they sat down to the negotiating table and agreed to not pursuing a nuclear program and meant it. Fair yeah, because yeah, I, because what else are they gonna go back to? They right. have, they have literally nothing else. Uh, right. I mean, their biggest exports I think are arms and drugs and right. illegally printed money. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so they they literally have nothing else to turn to, and I I think that is where. The U.S. may have been, I mean, hindsight 2020, but may have been a little bit naive in that um, and in negotiations with them. Because what what else is right. North Korea going to turn to? Like you were saying, that are they just going to rely on the international community to support them when historically the international community has never supported them? Right. Even China, to some extent, doesn't support them. Right. So this is all that they really have, at least in their view, I would guess. Right. So can we actually, can we go back temporarily for a second to... 90s with Bill. So after, uh, so in 19 something, I don't know, 92, 3, 4, something like that, uh, they kick IAEA inspectors out. Mm -hmm. We have the nuclear crisis and Jimmy, you know, United States quickly dispatches Jimmy Carter to Mm -hmm. do some diplomacy and we get this agreed framework. Um, And essentially, you could see this as a period of six years where I think by, by 2000, if I'm not mistaken, there was a time where Bill Clinton was actually considering going to Pyongyang. I mean, what what do you think leads to this divergence that, in the early 2000s specifically, mm-hmm. that causes China to feel that it has to step in and conduct six-party talks, multilateral talks, in order to, uh, in order to, um, ease tensions? Because ultimately, there was some degree, in one manner of another, of bilateral discussion in the late 1990s, and that fell apart in 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I wish, <laughs> I think every diplomat wants to know that question. Right. Um, because I think that would at least help try to work backwards how to renegotiate with North Korea. I, I don't right. think, I don't think anyone really knows that, unfortunately. And I, right. I, I do think there was some increasing of tensions around the early 2000s, but it has extremely heightened with Kim Jong-il's death and right. the leading into Kim Jong-un right. just because of how um, unpredictable he is. Right. So I think you did have these earlier issues earlier on, but you see a lot more Chinese involvement now and post Kim Jong-un as opposed to even earlier 2000s. Yeah, I want to ask about that because so the North Korean regime has always been kind of in, had an independent streak. I mean, even when it was involved in sort of a triangular alliance between uh, the Soviet Union uh China and and uh, North Korea, there was some degree of like wanting to create independent policy, right? And say, well, you know, we'll take your technical assistance, Soviet Union, but ultimately we want to build nuclear reactors. At first, they were saying for 
energy uh, for, for purposes of, of peaceful energy systems, right? But then it's kind of pursuing its own policy, and that's mm-hmm. that's where this comes up in the 1980s during the Reagan administration. And so I, I'm curious as to what, what about the transition from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un has created such hysteria internationally in that it's always had somewhat of an independent streak, but it seems like Kim Jong-un takes it to a new level. Mm-hmm. Um, what is, you know, I mean, no one really knows the motivating factors, but right. what is it, what is the perception of Kim Jong-un that differs from Kim Jong-il or Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung? I, I think the lack of warning. Mm-hmm. Um, Kim Jong-il at least would let the international community know when he was pulling out of an agreement mm-hmm. um, or when they were developing further, whereas Kim Jong-un really hasn't done that. Um, you know, yeah. we only find out via news sources after yeah. the fact when there's yeah. a missile test that's been happening. Like, right. not even... The United States, um, it it doesn't seem like we can obtain that information of where his administration or regime rather is going. Right. And at least there was an ounce of predictability with Kim Jong Il that I think we just don't see here at all. Um, so, and even way back to Kim Il Sung, you know, we mm-hmm. had a little bit more of that. So, right. that I think you know, this just changed things completely. And right. I think it, it has made China really skeptical of the entire situation. Right. And I, I actually, you know, now that I think about it, there's also the, the factor of um, when you have this three-way alliance, there's sort of a way to team up and get North Korea to do something, right? Mm-hmm. And then when the Soviet Union falls and it mm-hmm. becomes China and North Korea over time, North Korea discovers that, well, well it can behave badly a little bit and China still needs it uh, for the reasons we discussed earlier, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. so... I have an interesting question for you because yeah. I, I, I genuinely have no idea why. Uh, but North Korea shares a border, I mean a small border, but a border with Russia. Mm-hmm. And so right. why, ha- why has Russia not, I mean I know they're focusing much more on the Middle East and on yeah. Eastern Europe um, and the United States, but why has Russia not taken an investment in this as the previous Soviet Union somewhat had, at least in the 50s? That's that's a really, I mean, that's like a really interesting question. I want to look into that specifically because, I, I mean, I guess you might say because it has very little interest um, security-wise because it has such a small border. Mm-hmm. Um, although, I mean, it, it's just a really good question. I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I also think that just because of... Um, the the breakdown of relations between uh, the Chinese Communist Party and the Politburo, I think, was incredibly significant in that regard, just in terms of policy coordination. And I think that the relation the 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 relations between Russia and China are in and of in and of themselves fascinating to examine, just because of how fractious they are, but right. also how close they are. Right, because they're they territorially speaking, they are dependent on one another for for resources, for trade, for other security issues as well, because they do share large swaths of territory in common. Right. Right. Um, but I do think that on some level there is an implicit acknowledgement on the part of the Russian state that for them to interfere That's what I was, in yeah. North Korea after the fall of the Soviet Union was a very tense point of contention for, right. for well, both sides. Well, so like during the period of the Soviet Union, from what I understand, there's this constant like 
triangulation that's going on where where Kim Il Sung is playing China off of Russia, or the Soviet Union off of uh, the PRC, and, and and so forth in order to get technical assistance, mm -hmm. right? And they're getting huge amounts of technical assistance basically because from what nineteen well nineteen sixties, but really nineteen seventy onwards. You know the two couldn't stand each other particularly well actually there's this really interesting moment when so when nixon goes to china in 1971 uh north korea freaks out seek privately but that's actually the point at which kim il-sung designates kim jong-il to become the successor not publicly he doesn't do it publicly i don't think till 1980 or so but in the 1970s, he privately picked um, Kim Il-sung to be a successor, and he started worrying about succession, su succession is issues because there was this sense of paranoia that developed. And when we talk about the North Korean regime being paranoid, I actually think that it has its roots in all of a sudden, Nixon goes to China, you have... These tectonic shifts. You have these tectonic shifts going on around, and it feels like it doesn't have anyone to rely on anymore, mm -hmm. right? And so... Uh, I think the sense of paranoia has its roots there and I think also if I'm not mistaken that's the 1970s are where it really starts pushing for um, you know quote unquote peaceful nuclear energy which and and this is something I read from um, from a guy who writes a lot about the issue is Jonathan Pollack and he has this great book called No Exit and he's writing um, he writes about the fact that no one can can find documentation, perhaps at least until the collapse of the North Korean regime. But but no one can actually find evidence, uh, anyways, of the decision being made to pursue a nuclear program. Mm -hmm. they, it happened in Kim Il Sung's head, is what he literally has a sentence in the book where he says this this had to have happened in Kim Kim Il Sung's brain, and he might have expressed it verbally. But there's no documentation of this. The reason being, I I would think, is because of this sense of paranoia that exists following the Nixon visit, and so. Uh, then, all right, so if we fast forward a little bit to the collapse of the regime to answer your question, first of all, in the 1990s, Russia is too weak to exert any influence right. in the region, right? It's trying to, to create a market economy and rebuild a society, essentially. And um, there's, in, I mean, the level of internal domestic struggle as well just precludes any possibility of significant diplomacy at that point because there is no continuity of any kind of policy whatsoever. Right. At that stage. Right. It's just too unstable in the 90s. Yeah, and so, and that's an important time for getting influence in North Korea because the North Korea, there's the North Korean famine. I don't know how many people died you might have, have figured, yeah. but there, there's North Korean famine, and the North Korean regime, it, it's shocking that it did not collapse in yeah. the 90s on account of this famine. But um, the Chinese were able to furnish enough aid to stabilize the regime, and so China gets its foot in the door there. Really, an sorry, an independent foot. It always had a foot in the door in North Korea, but an independent foot in the door on account of all right, Soviet Union's gone. North Korea is having is struggling. We can step in now, and then in terms of Russia becoming a global hegemon again in, in this you know in the past couple of years as we understand it, I would just say that while while geopolitically. Russia is able to pull strings in the Middle East. Um, it can't compete with China, and it doesn't want to compete with China. It doesn't want because it needs China. So China is caught in the middle of it's a global power who who has this frenemy relationship with the United States. Russia and and the United States have animosity, and so it needs to maintain ties with China both because of what the interest in the long border. Matthias was talking about. Um, and so I, I don't actually think that Russia wants to step into China's zone. Like, it just doesn't want to interfere. 
um, because it's not it's not as powerful as it as it appears to be. You know, right. the 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 Russian power is a is an illusion created by Vladimir Putin, but it doesn't have it doesn't have the economic strength, the long term economic strength, or any economic strength at all right now. Whereas China is the economic hegemon of the world, or at least tied with us. And the economic strength that China, that Russia does have is to some extent contingent on functional relations, at least at an economic level, especially with regard to energy between China and Russia. Right. Um, just as a massive export market for, for, for Russian ener energy resources, right. which is lifeblood of the Putin regime. So right. they do not have any incentive to interfere with Chinese policy on that level. It just right. doesn't make sense for them. But right. why could they not act as a Chinese ally in this situation in order to further, considering, I mean, essentially now at this point, we, we do really have three major powers in the world. Um, mm -hmm. Why... If they have such animosity towards the United States and they have this quasi-frenemy relationship with China, could they not be a useful asset to China in this situation in order to get leverage on other issues? Um, and that could potentially help China clamp down on North Korea as well. Couldn't that be a mutually beneficial relationship that neither are really capitalizing on? Hmm. I, personally, from, from my perspective, I think it's pretty clear that, that, that Russia uh, places an enormous amount of importance on its continental orientation so right. towards Europe namely which is what which is why it's so involved in the Middle East right now is to basically control uh, flows of, of, of energy resources and commerce that's why that's why they they want to develop a much more significant footprint in the Middle East is to have much more significant influence um, over over basically European borders essentially right. um, and that's also why the European Union is right now. I mean, there's one of the things happening in, middle, in the Middle East right now is the, these two competing projects for the construction of pipelines. And basically, it's along geopolitical lines. That's, that's, that's how you chart the construction. If you look at the, 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 the blueprints for these, for, the, for these pipelines, they basically reflect geopolitical alignments. Right, and so the question is, okay, well, so who's going to be dependent on who for energy? Who's going to be dependent? Who's going to have this resource dependency on who, moving forward into the twenty first century? And I think that that is, like, the locust for all of uh, all of Russia's uh, diplomatic, military, and geostrategic focus right now. Right, and that's with respect to the United States as well. Right, but I mean, I do think I do think you raise an interesting point, Naomi, because. Um, ultimately, there are issues where Russia and China have common interests and can really actually pool resources. And I, I don't know if it's in reference to the North Korean issue, just because the, I mean, I, I, just, I, I just sense that Russia doesn't want to get entangled in this, uh, in this issue in the Asia Pacific, because ultimately, in, in, from a security standpoint, Russia knows that the Asia Pacific is the United States' region, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the United States has ties across the region from Indonesia all the way up to, you know, to Japan. Um, and so it's willing to pull strings in its sphere of historic sphere of influence, but this is not its historic sphere of influence. But you do raise interesting points, particularly because um, when you have Security Council issues, if, if the two could pool their resources, a lot of times, you know, they could actually achieve outcomes that, that both that are mutually beneficial. So, so, so on that level between the between China and and um, 
and and Russia. I think the one of one of my one of the most interesting anecdotes of recent times between the between between the two on a diplomatic level is within the context of the two thousand eight financial collapse. Um, it has been said. Uh, whether or not this actually happened is a matter of debate, but there is some level of documentation and some level of diplomatic testimony that does validate this claim that the Putin regime approached China about coordinating sales of real estate holdings in the United States in Fannie wow. Mae and Freddie Mac, <laughs> which would have basically, which basically would have, which basically would have imploded the imploded the, the American financial markets and global markets as well. Right. And so that move, I mean, who know who knows, right? I mean, that 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 kind that kind of move is is apocal, right? It just it, it shifts history in completely different directions. And it clears the table, right? right? I mean, it changes everything. It brings down the international infrastructure. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, from one day to the from one day to the next, Bretton Woods is destroyed. The post World yeah. War II order is destroyed. And what's interesting is that is that the Chinese, supposedly, this this again this again is is a matter of dispute for obvious reasons because on a diplomatic and geopolitical level, it's. It's kind of huge. Yeah. Um, but supposedly the, the the Chinese took a look at the offer, um, and basically with no hesitation whatsoever re- rejected it openly, because for because for that because for them I I, I think that the the Chinese don't consider the Russians to be potential partners in the development of a new world order. They just don't see it. Right. And and I think that I, and I think that on that level that that sends a pretty strong message to Russia about how uh, how China perceives the country the regime because at that stage we're talking about basically undercutting American power for who knows right I mean there's no predicting what would have happened had that actually taken place right. but but presented with an opportunity a historic opportunity like that the Chinese communist regime which is kind of which is notable in and of itself op- very quickly rejected that well, overture and so whether or not that's but, I mean but you I mean you could argue that the I mean the Chinese at that time I don't think and I don't I don't even think I'm not even sure right now were ready to inherit the mantle you know what I'm saying the the mantle of global economic leadership and to to basically throw away uh, the entire system, and then assume you know, basically, if you're going to throw away the entire system and try to build a new one, you need to be sure that you can handle the burden, right? Because if they mess it up once, they they, they only get one shot, yeah. you know. Um, so and, yeah, I mean, it might have been an issue of timing, you know. Yeah. yeah, you need to make sure also that you have that foothold and you have that power over these other huge players and I I think China has been playing their cards very smart in that they aren't assuming that they aren't making those assumptions as Russia generally has in the past right hey podcast listeners this is Kobe Uh, that's the end of our discussion with Naomi we really enjoyed it we wanted to thank her again Um, really fascinating subject Uh, I'm glad we had the chance to discuss it and and we'll definitely try to come back around to this one again uh, because it's a developing story and it's also a story with so many complex dimensions uh, there are things I'm learning about it all the time uh, and and I think uh, we'd love to come back and provide a fuller picture when the time is right uh, anyhow uh, until the next time we'll keep looking for the common thread thanks